Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. All kinds of greed. All kinds of greed. What were the kinds of greed? I'd be interested to know that came up. Um, You may not know this, but in the Hebrew uh, Bible, in the Hebrew mind, there is no actual word for spiritual. Did you know this? There's no word for spiritual. What we have done um, post-enlightenment in the West is we have created this disconnect. I shouldn't even say it's just in the West. It's been around for a long time. It was around in the time of the Gospels were written. It was called Gnosticism. It's this disconnection between the mind and the body. It separates things out if we are, as if we are not integrated human beings, as if our biology and what we do in our life do not matter to who we are. Who we are is a construct we hold in our head, and what we do is somehow sort of separate from that. And there's all sorts of unhealthy and unholy and not beautiful implications of this. But one of them involves money. Everything is spiritual. And so in the Hebrew mindset, the idea that like money was somehow detached from your relationship with God was absolutely ridiculous. One example of this, and I just love to mention this, I'll be really quick with this, but is in Leviticus 25. Anyone ever hear of the year of Jubilee? This is a regular rhythm in the life of a good Hebrew. If you're new to the scriptures, this is like the entire Old Testament this is the, 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 the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, who were called to be this um, people of God to bless the world. And they had a way of being in the world. There's a way they were meant to roll in the world. And it was meant ultimately to bless others. And one of these things was about this year of Jubilee. In um, verse 10 of Leviticus 25, uh, we read, Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. Um, have you ever seen Fight Club? I remember it's been, it's been years since I've referenced Fight Club. Years. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend this movie, depending on your disposition, but it's a phenomenal movie. The movie ends. I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Oh, you should have seen it by now. Um, unless you're 20-something, and I'm really sorry. I'm, like, ruining this movie for you. But it ends with the uh, blowing up of the credit card buildings. And it's the sort of idea, right, that sits as this metaphor of like, we're going to reset. The biggest issue that's facing our world is this rampant materialism. The whole movie is about simply materialism, this consumeristic culture, right? Capitalism gone wild. Like, this is where we find ourselves, the shadow side of this system that we have built and what they do, uh, the, the uh, antagonists in this movie blow up the credit card buildings. This is sort of what Leviticus 25 is about, in a way. It's resetting the clock. It's going, at, at a given moment, every 50 years or so, we're going to reset things. We're going to evaluate the relationships that exist in land ownership and money and make sure everybody is taken care of. Don't let anyone lose their family land is the refrain that comes up one way or another throughout that section of Leviticus. Don't let anyone lose their family land. You would never ask the question, what does money and land and debt have to do with walking with Jesus? Things were not compartmentalized like that. Your money has everything to do with God. Let's fast forward a few hundred pages to the book of Luke. This is the gospel where Jesus um, is talked about, one of the accounts from Dr. Luke of what he is like. A little background to some of what's happening there. There's a a king called Herod, and there's a place called Jericho. And Jericho is like the place where all of the wealthy vacation. Herod amassed so much power and so much wealth. He was deeply hated by most and loved by the few that benefited from it. He received all of his wealth via taxes to fund his immense building projects, which you can still go see the ruins of today, and to keep an army big enough 
that you couldn't, you know, rise up against him. Uh, and what would, basically what would happen is the tax rate that after every tier, like Herod would take his money, the tax collectors would glean their money, and then you have Caesar Augustus, the money going to them, as it'd be like, you know, town, state, country. They, they hypothesized roughly between 70 and 90% uh, was the taxation rate of your income, 70, 90% of your income. You can imagine with that kind of taxation, people were driven, driven into poverty. Family land taken again and again. Bigger palaces built again and again. They recently uh, uncovered a bottle of wine that would have been worth in that day about $20,000 or so. The Roman Empire, and especially Herod, were not beloved by the very people that Jesus is talking to and rallying. I mean, just can you even imagine just a few miles away, people building summer homes in a nation where the 17 miles from that, there were slums. Who could imagine such a thing, right? You ever been to Newport? You'll see it in real life. Jericho. Jericho is where the ruling elite would go to get away from it all. And we read in Luke 19, we're going, to have a, we're going to go through a lot of Bible passages today, so I just encourage you, if you have your Bible, to take that out. Some of it will be on the screen, some won't. We read in Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho. So I just gave you a tiny little snapshot of what Jericho is like and who's there. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, a tax collector and an arch tax collector is what he was. He was even more hated than the Romans because he was like one of the people who sold out to be in bed with Rome and Herod and wasn't just collecting the money like, sorry guys, I gotta do this. You know, everyone's gotta pay the bills. It was like that and then plus the tax collectors, specifically the arch ones, were well known for gleaning, again, another per- a bit of percentage off the top. So it's like your boy who you've been running with, who's part of your clan, your tribe, your crew, your gang, part of the people, goes, yeah, I'm going to kind of violate the whole way we were like raised, and I'm going to go and like be in bed with the man. And by the way, I'm not just going to kind of work for him. You know, we all need a paycheck, but I'm also going to glean a little extra off the top. This is Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. He wanted to see who Jesus was, so he's intrigued by this person going through Jericho. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Right? Why would, he, why would they all mutter? We're all on the same page here. Like, are you serious, Jesus? That guy? Jesus is the one who's like instilling just a little bit of hope in the people. You're one of us. And you are going to go sit with him? You sell out. Can we imagine what was being said? What sits underneath that word mutter? He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, sinner isn't the way we kind of use and throw that word around now. This was specific. You're going to be with somebody who's unclean, who hasn't walked the way. The reason why they believe, there was this belief that the reason why Roman oppression was still happening was because of people like Zacchaeus who were not obeying the law. They're like, this is obviously punishment. And you are going around claiming to be this like big deal rabbi. It wasn't really claiming that. People were just claiming that of him. You're delivering this radical message. Tons and tons of people are going with him. He's so famous, even an arch tax collector wants to like, I'm gonna get a, like, a look at this Jesus guy and you go and eat with him. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now. So some discussion happens. I give half of my possessions to the poor. 
And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. It's like, yeah, we all know you cheated people out of things. Jesus said to him, hear this verse. Jesus said to him what? Today, what's come to your house? Salvation. What's come to your house? Why did salvation come to Zacchaeus' house? Money. He sold half his stuff. Remember, we talked a few weeks back. The dominating picture around the subject of salvation was healing. The healing of your soul, the rescue of your heart and your being. It is more than just checking some box to go to heaven when you die, right? We're past that really horrible theology, correct? It's more than that. It includes more than that. The gospel is that Jesus is king and showing us his kingdom and what the way of Jesus looks like. And yes, we can say yes to that king. And that king saves us through grace and grace alone. And we will live ultimately with him forever. But it is about more than that if we're going to be Bible readers. It's about the healing of our soul. And there, salvation comes to Zacchaeus because he sold off half his stuff. I love this. It centers around money. And so if you're rich, and there's this whole system of taxes and tax collectors and keeping certain people down and raising other people up, and your head tax man goes soft, right? Like, what were all the wealthy thinking? What does that mean for your lifestyle? All the people who sit at the center of the culture of the city of Jericho. Dude, did you hear Zacchaeus went soft? Bro, bro couldn't, bro couldn't hang. Bro couldn't hang. I always knew it. He was always kind of short. I knew it, you know. <laughs> if you're poor and the tax collector who you hate starts to return stuff, what does that mean for you? Bro, did you hear about Zacchaeus? He gave back a bunch of money. He didn't just say it like he did it. Like, what's going on? I don't know, man. Don't trust him yet. This is nothing short of revolution, right? I, just, I, I wonder, and so many books have been written about this, what was happening? What was happening in this moment? Turn with me to Luke 12. Luke 12 is where we have our passage that we read just earlier. We see Jesus in the same gospel. I have this Bible, by the way, I grabbed really quick. Half of it is in Spanish and the other half is English and it's like so disorienting. So sorry for my... It's not that I forgot where Luke was. I'm just... <laughs> Luke 12, 16. Let's start earlier back. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is an odd request because this is not what a rabbi would do. Rabbis don't venture into this sort of dispute. Jesus replies, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is wild, right? A couple things we miss. There was nothing that like, existed like this kind of language in an individualistic society. This already is kind of a wild story to even us as 21st century readers, but even more so to those there. Here's somebody who experienced an abundance, 
And whenever there was that kind of abundance amongst the people he's talking to are not people of abundance, right? When he says be on guard against all kinds of wealth, he's talking to the poor crowd. There may have been a wealthier person, to, wealthier person or two there, but we know the general populace of who he's talking to, right? We know greed is not just for the wealthy, but can be for the poor as well. And so he, he, he addresses this crowd, but he points to a person in a story that is saying, I'm going to keep all this for myself. When everything in their world and culture would push you, if you had a good harvest, if you received so much abundance, it would be then for helping lift up the larger community. If there was any storing of things, it was for those that didn't have a good harvest this year. This is a much more communal society. So there's a number of reasons why this little parable that Jesus is telling this man is important. This man comes to him, and I don't know if he's looking for like an attaboy. He's looking for the rabbi to go like, yeah, be fair, brothers, work it out. Make sure you cut it evenly. And Jesus goes at him in front of the crowd and goes, look, your concern, whatever he knew about this story, you need to keep a lookout for. You need to watch out and be on your guard because this very question is coming from a place clearly of greed and not just of fairness and justice. Watch out. This is the question you're coming to me with after all that I've shared? The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest and he thought to himself, what am I going to do? And he builds bigger barns. You have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, this is rare. Almost never in Jesus' parables does God show up as an explicit character. Clearly, this is important. And then he says, you fool. You fool. This is strong language. This is you godless person. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves but is not rich toward God. Man, Jesus is not like lovey-dovey in this passage. Jesus uses this guy as an example. This is only scratching the surface of what Jesus has to say about greed and money and things. There is this phrase in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish language, Iyan Tova, in Raya, and it's this idea basically of somebody who is greedy is somebody who has an evil eye. This is a phrase they would use to describe somebody who is greedy. That's somebody who sees things poorly. And if you are somebody who is generous, you would have a good eye. Well, Jesus takes this phrase as we keep going through what Jesus has to say about wealth and greed and goes further. First, he famously says in Matthew 6, again, if you're following along, Matthew 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where you, your treasure is, there your heart is also. So he takes this phrase about a good eye, bad eye right here in Matthew 6, 22 and takes it further. You following? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then... The light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? And then he just cuts to the chase. How brilliant is that? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the others. You cannot serve both God and money. He's saying this is going to affect your whole life. This affects your whole life, how you see everything. How great is that darkness? If you are somebody who has their eyes just sort of wrong in how they approach things, 
See, what Jesus is saying and what he says again and again and again in money and treasures and stuff and house and accomplishments and all of it, he wants to save us from our stuff. This stuff can be a tool, but most often this stuff becomes an idol. And so he's pointing out that I will show you where your heart is. Just give me your budget. Just give me your credit card statement. Show me your spending patterns. Show me the credit debit month over month. There's no right word for spiritual. It's all spiritual. Money is spiritual. Issues of money and stuff are a matter of the heart, which must be why Jesus ties money and stuff to anxiety more often than not. Fear and anxiety. And he brings it back to you. Man, if you trusted me with your stuff, watch those things drop. Again and again. Take time, right? A good sermon should get the conversation started, not complete it. Take time to just go through Luke slow and look at the way in which Jesus connects the dots. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is great, like kingdom uh, opus. And he just shows us again and again, if you could trust me with these things, trust me that you're loved. Trust me that, that I will take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And then he lands right here with then your treasure. Where, where is your treasure then? Because if you're aligned with the things of the kingdom, then all of the things that you're spending your life on are things like love and joy and sacrifice. They're the things of the kingdom that will last forever. And what you won't have happen is that anxiety and control creep up. Calvin said this, didn't see a Calvin quote coming, did you? Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost authority. Where riches, where stuff hold the dominion of your heart, God has lost its authority. A good eye is a generous eye. It lets the good stuff in because it will affect everything. It's not just pleasing God with how much you gave or didn't give this month. It's like this will affect your general disposition. Look, money isn't bad. Money's powerful. We talk about this with sex all the time. Sex isn't bad. It's just a really powerful thing. So when the Bible spends most of its time, literally look it up, talking about two things as it relates to who we're becoming, it talks about money and it talks about sex. Over and over and over again. Why? Because the Bible's just so obsessed with these things. No, they are such strong drivers that can produce so much good. But because they are such strong drivers, they're the first things that are going to get out of whack. The first things that are going to go sideways. I love the definition of sin. Are good and healthy and beautiful desires that have gone astray. God never, right, invented something evil. The devil never invented a pleasure, C.S. Lewis says. In other words, all the devil does, all evil does is twist the good thing that God made and takes that good thing, sex and money, and makes it an ultimate thing. Can you really trust God with your finances? That's Adam and Eve in the garden. Can you really trust God with your body? That's Adam and Eve in the garden. Can you really trust God? I think an average middle-class American life where you like hustle and stress out just to make just enough money to retire and have a few years down in Florida. I think that's the life God wants for you. You can at least contain that and manage it. It may not be the greatest life ever, but at least you can contain and manage that. That's the devil. <laughs> right? Nothing against Florida. Just everything, everything against Florida. Um, <laughs> kidding. Money isn't bad. It's powerful. Hear me. Money isn't bad, it's just powerful, like fire. Have some reverence towards it. It will burn you, or it will cook a sweet meal. The problem is, I think, with this whole discussion, we talk about greed, and by the way, we're in this sort of series this month on what it is to be on your guard. That's where we started last week. Be on your guard, keep watch. A command that comes up again and again and again. 
be on your guard against all kind of greed. The difficulty with this is most of us don't really think we struggle with greed. Because in general, I think we're like, well, I know somebody else who's more greedy than me. So I'm really not that greedy. I don't even know if I'd call it greed. I'm sure I can manage my money a little better. Maybe I could give a little more. And if that sermon's going to be about giving a little more, then fine, I can do that. And we don't ask the bigger questions like, am I grateful? Am I alive? Am I seeking first the things of God? Am I asking the question, how much can I give more than I'm asking it, but how much can I save? See, greed has a profound impact on our happiness. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but I want to talk about two. Hedonic adaptation. Yep, you can write that one down. And the second one is about our relationships. Hedonic adaptation, really quickly. This has been like uh, studied and studied and studied. In 1971, the phrase was uh, first birth. The concept basically suggests that people tend to adapt to new circumstances, including increased wealth relatively quickly. And as a result, the initial boost of happiness that is derived from acquiring more stuff, more possessions, more wealth, is always temporary. It's the famous phrase, I forgot to look up who this was. Uh, was it Warren Buffett? Senior Buffet. I think it was him who said, how much money do you really need? And Warren Buffett said, just a little more. If that wasn't him, I'm sorry, Warren. It was somebody else. I'm pretty sure it was him. Just a little more. This is what hedonic adaptation says. Have you ever like finally, you never thought you would actually buy that house. You'd get to own a house. I know anybody who's like 20s and 30s, you're like, that's off the table here in Rhode Island. I know. But for those of you who just made it in and you're like, we finally did it. And suddenly your house is just too small, like really quickly. Man, I, I, all, I, I thought I would reach this level in my job. I finally got to this point. I finally am making this money. It's like when you're 19, you can't imagine making that much money. You can't imagine having that house. You can't imagine having those relationships. You can't imagine, and then all of a sudden you have it. And basically, hedonic adaptation basically says, yeah, 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 we, we know this from science. That happiness will drop right off. It will fall immediately back to some sort of plumb line. People often remark how quickly and how, ex the ex um, the ex how quickly the extraordinary becomes commonplace. One scientist says, we are highly adaptive creatures. The predictable becomes, by definition, background, leaving the attention uncluttered. The better to deal with the random or unexpected. Sheldon and Lucas said, define hedonic adaptation as the tendency to cease noting to stop noticing a particular stimulus over time so that the stimuli no longer have the emotional effects they once had. This, by the way, has been codified again and again by every celebrity cliche. Tom Brady and Jim Carrey, I've quoted them before, being like, I just wish everybody could get everything they wanted. I really wish that so that they would know it just does nothing for you. I just wish they could have that. Tom Brady literally not knowing what to do with his life. He's like, how many more Super Bowl rings? He's like, I don't know, one more maybe? Like hitting these walls. It's what's been codified into every single pop song. It's worth its salt. Money can't buy me love or some version of that. And the move then that people who study hedonic adaptation, who study this reality that I get things that I want and that high and that rush and that sense of control and I'm finally there. The fact that that goes away so fast, people have spent so much time studying how do we stop that happening? How do we get off the quote hedonic treadmill? And you know what their move is? It's like an ancient Christian move. Gratitude. Practice gratitude. A study was done that gave people a gratitude journal and like basically by gunpoint forced them like you're gonna write in this thing every morning and every night for a year. Guess what? Unbelievable data about them getting off that hedonic treadmill. Happiness just peeking through the roof. And so as a follower of Jesus, studier of scripture and somebody who's pretty dialed into history, I go, that's been around for a long time. Almost every single New Testament epistle has some place in it, like be grateful in all things, rejoice in the Lord always. When we come together and we worship, you're like, why are we singing this chorus again? It's like trying to bing into our heads and our bodies and our souls that gratitude is our default posture. 
Be thankful for what God has given you, for who you are, that you will live with him forever for what he says about you. Gratefulness and gratitude is the thing that provides this cure ultimately then for greed. Another place, as we begin to kind of land the plane here, that that we struggle with, I think, is in our relationships. So we have this drive to just get more and more and more because we think it's going to make us happy. We get stuck on this treadmill and we don't know how to be grateful and content with what we have. And part of that, I think, has to do with, number two here, is our relationships. In Luke 18, 18 to 25, a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A normal question you'd ask a rabbi. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now, real quick. The Ten Commandments are split in two. The first five have to do with God, and the second five have to do with relationships. This is very normal, understood, like a way of uh, dividing up the Ten Commandments. The first five, God direction. Second five, about how we relate to one another. And then, so keep that in mind. Jesus is so smart. Jesus, you should think about following him. He says this, listen to this, so clever. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. And he starts with, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. So he's starting with the relational ones. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And he stops. He misses one. He misses one of the relational ones. Do you remember what one he misses that's relational? Covet. He doesn't, he leaves it out. Jesus, by the way, does this in multiple places. I don't time to get into why. He's teaching him a lesson. He like drops it. Why does he not mention that one? This is what this man's struggling with. And then the, the, the man responds, all these I have kept since I was a boy, said the liar. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have, here's the language again, treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, it became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? There's a lot going on here, but I want to point to this issue around covetousness. He's got this wealth and there's this way in which he's actually not being faithful to the commandment because apparently some of his wealth and greed may very well be driven by comparison. Social comparison and envy, these are the things that come up again that contribute to a lack of happiness and joy in life as it relates to greed. Engaging in constant social comparison, particularly in the context of wealth, Jones says, can lead to feelings of envy and dissatisfaction and creates unbelievable detrimental realities to mental health. Look, In my 20s, I felt very comfortable living in South Providence in a rundown house with a bunch of fellas wanting to like change the world. For those of you who are like been followers of Jesus, you fell in love with Jesus in youth group or you've been raised in the church and 20s were just like peak love for the things of God. When you're in your 20s, it doesn't cost you much to follow these commands with Jesus. Because everyone around you, everyone around you is what? Broke. For the most part. Right? Some of y'all did well right out of college, but for most of us. So it's like, yeah, I'm gonna like live a life where I, I'm gonna have a car and anyone can borrow it at any time. Right? I'm gonna live communally. I don't know if this is your experience, but those of us, like, I, this is a good thing. There was passion and zeal for me, and a lot of my friends, some of you are here, are how we're gonna live for the things of Jesus. The call to lay down our lives is though never more under threat when we begin to establish our regular life. Brian Sanders says, this happens pricely because we are in the zenith of our creative calling. The devil will find new interest in you as you stand on the precipice of creating something unique and beautiful for the kingdom of God and in Jesus' name. I know not all of you are in that stage of life, but most of you are. There is this moment that you can expect to be tempted by all the shiny things that surround you. Christians in their 30s and 40s in particular suddenly find themselves surrounded by peers. 
at the height of their earning potential. Living with other people, driving an old car, choosing to be out of fashion, you thought high school was hard. Is this for anybody? Choosing, I mean, this is superficial compared to that kind of greed. The life of surrender to Jesus will almost certainly mean you will not have the best house on the block. That you will feel behind the promotional advancement of your colleagues and friends. And if you are called to climb the water, the ladder, this is not a demonization of wealth. If you are called to climb that ladder, you are not called to spend the spoils in the same way the world does. And so Brian Sanders writes, he says, do not let the profoundly alluring siren song of greed grip your heart, which in my experience can easily happen in your 30s and 40s. If you do, it will certainly cost you as someone called to seek first the kingdom of God and create new things. So where do we go from here? When we talk about greed and wealth, and this could naturally fall into a place of giving, we think about then how do we break off this? We practice gratitude and we practice generosity, right? I want to invite you to think about This is my technical theological word here, but I want you to invite you to think about clicks. Some of you, some of you are in serious debt. Some of you, I had a conversation with someone just the other day who's here, who was like, I don't know what to do with the giving liturgy. What do you mean? Tear forming in their eye. I don't know what to do with it. Why? I have nothing. I go, we all have something. No, I didn't say that. Nothing. And I know this person's backstory and where they're at, and I won't share anymore. But she just looks at me going, oh, what do I do? Well, what you do is we're not burdening you with anything. Where you are, think of these cliques. We as a community need to meet you here because there are so many in our community who have wealth. And this is why we have a needs fund. Which, by the way, we got to close the gap on that. We need like eight grand more to close the gap on our budget for that. Could we make that happen? To come in and, and, and actually make sure that there are no needy among us. We as individuals can redistribute our own funds, but we have the gift as a church because we get so many calls to need that come in and have an opportunity to do that. There's somebody else who's in an unbelievable amount of debt has got connected in with some folks in our church who are really good at financing. Really good at financing, at finances. And helping people figure out how to get out of debt. And so the click for them, actually, and I meant to put some scissors up front here, is you just need to come up front and you need to cut up your credit card. You need to be done with that. You need to get out of debt. It doesn't mean you can't give as you do that. But God wants to meet you in that place. And then there are, there are others who, um, and I want to say this ch- as gently as I can, but I'm also kind of over the like fear of like all churches want our money. If you're new with us, that's not us. And go just go talk to somebody around the church. This is not us. And we do want your money because we want to like help like deliver people from bondage in our city. And one of the ways we can do that is a part of this communal place that is called the church. So... But here's what I want to say is like our church in by and large is carried by a, a small percentage of folks that give a lot. And they're actually not even, as far as I can tell, the wealthiest folks in our church. They just give 10% of their funding as far as, again, I can roughly surmise. Just give a lot. Actually, in the first 500 years of the church, studies have shown that actually it wasn't just a handful of wealthy people that provided for the church. It was mostly the folks who were in the middle, that sort of average middle class who gave just a bit every month. And so there are some folks in our church who, they, 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 when they look at how much they have to give, like, I don't really know if I can give that much more. And God may be just inviting you to the next click because he wants to break off the greed in your heart And he wants to further the work that God's doing in our city through our community. And then there are some that are are giving 10%. Like I'm pretty sure of it. Or you're making nasty money. 
And like God, God, God may be inviting you to 12. This isn't a grab for money. A theology of clicks is an acknowledgement that God is looking to meet us where we are at and invite us forward into the next step. Invite us deeper. How do I leverage what I've been given? I didn't ask permission to share the story, so I'll leave names out, but an individual in our church is just like, I want to leverage my gifts to start a, a small organization that is gonna benefit some of the most under-resourced people in our community to help get them jobs and help them move forward in their career. Folks that usually don't get this opportunity, this person's got plenty of stuff to do. I'm gonna leverage my resources for the things that matter most. And so the beauty of a theology of cliques is the story of the whole scriptures, right? God begins with like, just try not killing people. Don't murder, right? Just like big macro. And it ends with like, dude, even when you get really angry and judgmental towards someone, it's basically like murder, right? It begins with like, try sleeping with somebody who's like just your spouse. Just try that, it's hard. Don't commit adultery. And it ends with like, dude, even having like thoughts for other people, man, that's like, you're participating in that system. He's inviting all of humanity to the next click. How much more with our resources? Meeting us where we're at and pulling us forward. And so the analogy that we started with last week for this series, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The analogy we used was of a house. Think of your heart and mind like a house. And how are you going to keep it safe. How's thinking about this? How do we do this? How do we be on guard? Again, gratitude. Do you understand how rich you are in the things of God? Cora and I did this last night. I about fell into tears as we're having dinner together. Do you know how rich we are? And we just went through the list. Good Lord, what God's given us. Because we were worried about, can I just be honest? We're worried about a bunch of financial stuff. Like how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And a lot of it was just, we want this. We just want this. We should be able to. At this point in our life, we should, we should. And I'm like, felt God just like straight up, like whack us across the cheek. Stop. How do we protect the house? Gratitude. We stop comparing to other people. If you're a devout follower of Jesus, always asking, what can I give? What can I give? Then even if you are, again, called to climb the ladder, it's going to look different than the people around you. If your life looks like oddly, perfectly similar to everybody else around you who are not followers of Jesus, that's just a time to evaluate. No condemnation. Take a look. What's God inviting you? What's the next thing God's inviting you to? And so then I was thinking, how else do we keep our house safe? My mind and my heart. How do I on guard against all kinds of greed? And I'm like, what else do we call, do we keep safe? Like, where do we literally put our money? In a safe. I like to smile. I'm like, we become, like we put it in a thing that we call safe because it's the most like treasured possession that we have is our stuff. And what we actually need to be keeping safe is our relationship with God. What we need to be keeping safe is our lives. Be on guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist of a bunch of stuff. You can't take it with you. Don't be filled with regret. Don't live an anxious, controlling life. Be okay living underneath your actual income. Be someone so radically generous that you get to the end of your life and like, yeah, that extra vacation would have been nice, but oh man, what we were able to do in this lifetime as you look across the table at your, whatever. <laughs> it's gonna say spouse, but not all of us are called to marry and I did this thing in my head and I stopped. We defend our homes. We lock our car doors. We install security systems. We must do the same with our heart. We cannot leave the door open. Be vigilant in protecting your house. Can you identify even now where you might have opened the door to some greed? 
All kinds of greed sneak in. All kinds of greed sneak in. And so I was asked to be very practical in this message by my spouse. So this is her gift to you. How do we do this? Practice gratitude. You can, next slide. Set contentment as a goal. Do you practice what it is to be content? Do you know what it is to be content in all things? Paul says you can literally be content in all things. Establish a budget. It's really hard to know where the money's coming from, where it's coming and where it's going if you don't have a sense of like, okay, what, 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 we don't even really know what we're spending our money on. Avoid comparison. We talked about this. Practice generosity. Practicing generosity means you build into your life. This is part of what tithing is. As I'm just like the first 10%, I'm just giving away. Just doing it. I'm going to break off the chains of that. It's literally not mine. By the way, that is the language throughout Scripture. Your money is not yours. Stewarding. You're stewarding what God's given you, even the ability to make money. Set limits on consumption. This is so hard for me. Set limits on consumption. Rejoicing and feasting are not a bad thing. They're celebrated. They're celebrated, but set limits on it. You know where they are. Pray about them. Assess your motives. Seek accountability. This one's hard. Bring somebody else into your finances. This is the thing I was most convicted by in preparing this. I mentioned the other day, I confessed to my like childhood best friend on the phone once a week. I'm like, I need to bring money into that. How have you been spending your money? Where are you saving? What if somebody else knew how much you had in your account? Knew where, knew like where your money was and you were holding each other, pushing each other on to be a force of generosity in your world. And all of this falls under that banner of seeking first the kingdom of God. Again, you remember the verse, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom, all this other stuff that's good and beautiful and can be used. The early church wrestled with these questions so much because in the first like couple hundred years, everybody was pretty much broke. And then by 500, mass amounts of wealth because of Constantine poured into the church. And so there's so much wrestling with what do we do? How do we become alive in Christ? And I thought, are we wrestling sanctuary church with that question? A good sermon starts the conversation, doesn't end it. I'm just starting a conversation for us. I want to see awakening in our city. I want to see the church known for being so radically generous. And we are, by the way, our church shows up when we make an ask. But friends, let's wrestle with what it means to go further and deeper. So would you stand with me? We're going to end today with, I hope, a little more maybe gusto or sobriety, and we're going to read the giving liturgy together. This is what we, every single week, we read, almost. And it's meant to just remind ourselves again and again and again why we give. If you're sitting here convicted, you're like, I could give 25. If everyone in this room gave, by the way, 25 extra a month, we would like clear our budget shortfall that we have right now. Like just heads up, like really quick, 25, 100 extra, not a week, a month, I mean, 25 extra a month. Maybe some of you are being called to that. Maybe some of you don't, you don't give regularly and you're like, I wanna have that regular habit for my own heart and soul. Maybe you're like, I can't even think about giving or you've got a lot of brokenness around giving to a church because you have seen very real abuse. Just begin to pray into that. And let's read together. There's nothing we have that we have not received. To spend everything on ourselves and to give without sacrifice is to walk the way of death. But generosity is the way of those who call Jesus their Lord, who love with free hearts and serve with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches. We are determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. We are determined to be faithful stewards of such a little thing as money that we may join God in the work of renewal 
Above all things, we are determined to be generous. Why? Because our Father is generous. It is the delight of his daughters and sons to share their father's traits and to show what he is like to all the world. Amen? There was a tradition that we used to have. We would say, all right, we're gonna all take a minute and acknowledge that we're gonna give in the back of the room. And I invite everybody, like can everyone just like give a big shout, right? Because it says in 2 Corinthians, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. It's meant to be a joy because it releases us from all the things, all the greed that wants to entrap us. So we're gonna pass the baskets in a minute and I'd love to start a new tradition. So when whoever's up here is like, all right, we're gonna pass the baskets and practice generosity together. Everyone just gives like a absolutely ridiculous like round of applause. Like we get to do this, so ready? So we're gonna pass the baskets today and practice generosity together. We pray, come Holy Spirit. If there are some things, this is a season of confession. Lent is this season of confession. We're practicing this together in our home churches. If you need to come forward physically and just confess greed, confess some places, you need to lay down some things down. If you're here and you desperately need help managing your money, would you write that on a high card? Or would you email us like right away and we would love to help you? If you would love to just offload resources right now, you realize you're not sure how to steward that, let us help you. If you'd like to build into your regular rhythm the first of the month, like you just need to let go more of that and join and contribute wholly to the life of the church and that like we wanna help you do that. But with those clicks in mind, I just pray, come Holy Spirit. We want the shackles of greed broken off us. So as we close with this last prayer, you can have it all, Lord. I ask, Lord, would you, I humbly come before you and ask, Lord, would you move in our midst and spur us on to love and good deeds. Spur us on to generosity. Spur us on, Lord, support one another. Bring to mind, like you have so many times, people in our community who are in need right now. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come?